0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We have um, spent, as you know, some time now in this passage. Three messages covering the first 14 verses. And, and really focused on this one central and compelling question that Paul gives in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And we spent uh, time, some time... Trying to answer and trying to uh, demonstrate, as Paul answers in this passage, why as believers we will not continue in sin. Why we not only should not, but we will not because of certain spiritual realities that have taken place in our life by by way of the cross. Well, we come today to verse 15 of this same chapter, and, and what we find is a slight variation, but substantially the same question where Paul writes, what then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? These two questions really come from the same notion, the same mistaken notion about the gospel and about, if you will, the, the new realities of Christianity through the new covenant. Particularly what Paul had said so plainly at the end of verse 14, sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There would have been those who hear such a thing and immediately thought, well, if we're not under law anymore, then this is going to automatically lead to license. It's going to automatically lead to a spree of sinful behavior. They would be arguing, in other words, that a religion of grace or a religion built on grace just doesn't work, not in the practical world. That if we celebrate God's forgiveness too much, if we put too much emphasis on it, then it's going to, if you will, by default, lead people to no longer feel any need to pursue righteousness or feel any need to pursue pursue God, to pursue obedience. You might have expected Paul to say there in verse 14, you're not under sin, but you're under grace. Instead, he says, you're not under law, but you're under grace. And so this is their question. If we abandon law, won't it lead to licentious living? Won't it lead to a life abandoned to sin? Well, Paul's answer in verse 15 is the same he gave back in verse 2. It is an emphatic no. By no means is that the right conclusion that is that is spiritual nonsense he says it in the most emphatic way that he could have with the negative double negative here in the greek why well paul essentially gives the same answer to us in verses 15 through 23 that he gave in verses 1 through 14 although this time changing if you will some of the terminology but but emphasizing Very similar truth. The main difference being that in verses 1 through 14, his response was, You will not continue in sin because you have died to sin. Whereas here in verses 15 through 23, instead of saying you've died to sin, his whole emphasis is, You are a slave of God. These two truths basically. Presenting the same reality, one in relation to your old life, you died to it, one in relation to your new life, you are enslaved to God. And these constitute, if you will, the combined idea on why a believer, when they become a believer, will experience such a radical transformation in their life that they will no longer walk in sin. They won't continue in it. Paul, in other words, is still showing why, if you're a believer, why you will continually turn to God, why, while it may not be an overnight process, it may not be an all-at-once experience, there will be a progressive movement in your life from one level of holiness to the next. And it will be certain, it will certainly happen because of the realities of the truths that he presents in these verses. Let me read to you just to sort of set it up in our minds from verse 15 through 23 and listen particularly to Paul's emphasis in these verses on this issue of slavery. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death? Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you hear the overarching truth here. In these nine verses, Paul uses the word slave eight times. And this is really ultimately what he wants us to understand about the realities of our life if we're a believer. The clear dominant theme, the thing that you and I need to grasp is this slavery that is... Now a part of your life if you are a Christian. And the implications that come out of that toward holiness. He wants us to grasp that. If you are a believer, you are without any, uh, uh, if you will, uh, conditions or without, without any sort of modifications. If you are a believer, you are a slave of God. And that has implications. Paul presents this with four, if you will, definitive statements that help us understand the slavery in these verses. And we can begin just looking at verse 16 after he presents the question and he begins to answer verse 16. He tells us and explains to us that, first of all, we're slaves to whoever we obey. That's his statement there. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one you obey. Either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. I mean, this is what you might call a self-evident truth. This is why Paul begins the verse with that phrase, Don't you know this? Can't you see this? Isn't this obvious to you? If you present yourself as an obedient slave... That person or that thing that that you are obeying is your master and you are its slave. Another way to say that is your obedience proves your slavery. You are either enslaved to God or you are enslaved to sin. There is no middle option. The modern person who hears that, of course resists that idea. He rejects it and and resists it and and denies it. Because in the modern mind, every person is sort of the captain of their own soul, the master of their own destiny. And nothing could be more fundamental to the way that people think of themselves, especially in our culture. One of the most cherished ideas of self-identification is this idea of self Or individual autonomy. That I not only ought to, but I can and I do make my own choices and my own decisions. I am an independent, autonomous, and unencumbered, if you will, person. And yet from a biblical standpoint, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a free person. You are enslaved, either to sin or to God. When you look around you at the people in this room, or the people in your life, what you see are people who are enslaved, either to sin or to God. It's a scary thought, really, to think about those forces uh, apart from God that are driving so many that are driving those who are in authority over our country, those who are in authority over us and our life. It's a scary thought to know that they themselves are enslaved to some power that they may not even be aware of, but that's what the Scripture teaches. Someone might respond, well, how can you say that? How can you know that about every person? It's simple, just simply look, what, look at what they obey. I mean, the evidence is right there. Look at whether they obey God or look at whether they obey sin. And that will tell you whether they're enslaved. It's a self-evident truth. And if you're here this morning and you are not obeying God, then you are obeying sin. If you're here this morning and you imagine yourself to be free, the master of your own choices, you're not. And the proof is in your behavior. It's in the way that you're living. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you are obedient to sin. You are enslaved to sin. In other words, you cannot stop sinning. You can't. You can try, you can commit yourself, you can turn over a new leaf, you can have a New Year's resolution. You can say you're going to change your ways. You can apologize to the people who you hurt. You can do all those things. But you couldn't stop sinning if you tried. Why? Because you're a slave to it. Because you're bound to it. In fact, you could test that truth out in your life. You could try to prove that you're free from the slavery of sin. You could try to prove that you can live without obeying it. But you'll fail you'll fail because sin is your master. Without you ever realizing it, you have made yourself a slave. It might be the sin of drunkenness. It might be the sin of debauchery. It might be the sin of anger. It could be something like smug pride or arrogance. It can be all kinds of manifestations. It doesn't show itself in everybody's life exactly the same way. It might be sins of the tongue. It might be sins of behavior. But if you're not in Christ, your life gives all the evidence of someone who's enslaved. Even if you've never noticed it before. It's a self-evident truth. It's simple enough. If you look out into a field and you saw a bunch of workers laboring in the field, you would conclude that they are working for its owner. Right? Whether it is employment or whether it's by slavery, depending on how the economy is set up, you would conclude that these workers worked for the owner of the field. If I go out there and see in your life and see sin going on in your life, I would conclude that you are serving sin. So, in like manner, when you present yourself as obedient to sin, you're giving evidence of who your master is. But on the opposite hand, Paul tells us if you present yourself to God for obedience, you give evidence that God is your master. You are his slave. You present yourself to him to obey him. And as he says here, it leads to righteous living. Your obedience, in other words, is the litmus test of where you stand in Christ and and in this test there there are these only these two possibilities obedience to god or obedience to sin the natural man recoils he doesn't want to think that he's enslaved he may not feel enslaved although at times he ha- he might admit that his life feels out of control he might feel the unpleasant and destructive consequences of his tongue and his behavior and his sinful isolation or whatever it might be. Sometimes he might feel trapped in all the rubble of the destroyed relationships around him. But he doesn't want to relinquish the life of sin that he has. And so he remains trapped. He remains enslaved. They don't want to admit their slavery. The suggestion to them sounds absurd. In fact, the unbeliever The unbeliever actually thinks that by coming to Christ, it actually means giving up all their freedom. That's the way they think of it. If I start coming to church with you, if I start believing the way that you do, I've got to give up all this freedom I have, as if they ever had it. Coming to God, coming to Christ, coming to church, giving up all my freedoms, so I'm either... Not going to come, or I'm going to wait a while until I enjoy all the freedoms that I want to enjoy, and then maybe I might consider coming to God. That's the way they think. But if that's you, you've simply believed the same lie that Satan has suckered and deceived people with for ages. It's among the first that he ever used. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, he was trying to capture Eve for his own purposes, to make her his slave. And he didn't tell her, if you follow me, you'll be my slave. No, what he told her is, if you follow me, you'll be like God. You'll be autonomous. You won't need God anymore in your life. You'll be able to make your own decisions on your own. No, she was cast into slavery. And by her husband, cast everyone else for all of time into slavery. The Scripture reveals exact opposite you cannot stop sinning when you're a slave to it but you know the way out of slavery the way out of all those unpleasant and destructive consequences is easy it's just simple surrender to a new master just surrender to a new master This is what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He taught the same truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. John 8, 34. But then he follows it up by saying, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the pathway to freedom from sin, the pathway of of conquering and freeing yourself from the mess that you're making with your life the mess that your sin is making and enslaving you to, the pathway to freedom from all of that is only found through Jesus Christ. It's not found by getting rid of all the problem people in your life. It's not found by you going out there and lashing out and attacking or doing whatever it might be. That freedom is found, Jesus says, when the Son makes you free. That's when you're free indeed. As a number of writers have pointed out, during the American Civil War, there were actually some slaves in southern plantations who were persuaded by their masters to fight alongside of them against Union soldiers. Who knows what ultimately was used to convince them, but the sad reality is they were fighting against the very force that was there to free them. And here you are today, if you're an unbeliever, fighting against God, resisting His Word, resisting the call to the gospel, enslaved to your master, Satan and sin, and fighting against your emancipator, Christ, all the while, trying to block Him out of your life. But if you're a believer, Paul says, the same truth applies. You are defined by who you serve. If you serve sin, you have no claim on being a Christian, but if you serve God, it gives evidence of your enslavement to Him. And Paul's not trying to present this as some, some uh, sort of obligation that you need to uh, understand and begin to employ. employ. He, he's presenting this as a reality. He's just stating it as a fact. He's not informing you that you have this as an obligation and and therefore you need to begin doing this. He's saying if you are a believer, the evidence will be there by what you serve. You've come to God. You've enslaved yourself to Him. You've given up your life so that you may find it. You've taken up your cross so that you can follow Him. And so the evidence will be there. It doesn't make any sense that you would be set free by the power of the cross and of the gospel and then go back to your slavery. That, that, that is nonsense. Paul's whole point is that's why you won't continue in sin. You've been set free. It's not as if that at some point you were a slave and then you became a slave of Christ and then you go back to your slavery. Having been set free from sin, you no longer obey it. I don't know if you've ever heard of Checkpoint Charlie, that famous place in the Berlin Wall before it was taken down, which was widely known because it was the easiest way, it was said, in order to immigrate or to <clears throat> steal across from East Berlin to West Berlin. And there are all kinds of these famous stories about people, you know, ramming through the gate with their car or cutting under the bars with their convertible or, or even just, you know, running across the fields and, and some of them losing their life and, and, uh, and braving the barbed wire and all these things. But you know, in all of those stories that are told, there's never a story about someone running from the west back to the east. It doesn't make any sense. Having been freed from that, why in the world, who in the world would ever want to go back to the slavery? And so Paul says, look, if the Son has set you free, if you have come to know Christ, you will be a slave of God. And it will be evident in the way that you live. It will be evident in the things that you obey. This is exactly what John teaches us in 1 John 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Why won't he keep sinning? Because he's been born of God. He's been born of God. He's experienced a new birth. There's been a, a, something dramatic, so dramatic, that has taken place in his life. The only comparison that can be made to it is the dramatic day of your birth. This is a new birth. In your life. And when that happens, you become God's. His seed is planted in you. Or another way to say that is God's nature is planted within you. 2 Peter 1 says, We become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We've escaped out of that, and we escaped out of that because. God plants His nature within us, and the change that takes place is dramatic. It's, it can be compared to the healing of a blind eye. You know the way I, 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 you, you heal a blind eye, obviously not by just turning up the light and shedding more light on it. You heal a blind eye by something fundamentally changing in your life. And in like manner, when you come to Christ and when you come to God, when you come to salvation... You don't come to salvation because you're adding just a bunch of ritual into your life. You're not coming to God because you're just adding a bunch of church involvement to your life. You're not adding a bunch of routines into your life that one day you just get tired of and then you sort of dump along the way because something else takes your attention. No, when you come to God, something fundamentally changes inside of you. So that whereas before you were blind, but now you see. This is the change that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 6. And it takes us to the second definitive statement that helps us to understand the slavery. The slavery image that he's using. Because he tells us in verse 17 and 18, as a sort of an explanation of that principle in verse 16. That we obey from our hearts the teaching to which we were enslaved. He says, thanks be to God that, that you who were once slaves of sin... You became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul saying that if you are in Christ, there was this change. A heart level change that takes place in you. And you, you committed yourself, you surrendered yourself, you enslaved yourself to God. Or, or more specifically, what he says here in this verse that you enslaved yourself to a standard of teaching. You didn't enslave yourself, in other words, to just some vague emotional experience. You didn't enslave yourself to to some uh, uh, spiritual high, some event. If you're a believer, certainly there was emotion when you came to know God, but but you didn't enslave yourself to that. What you enslaved yourself to is literally a pattern of teaching. In the Greek, it is tupos, uh, a kind of a mold that people would use sometimes to pour molten metal into to form something exactly after the mold. And what he's saying is that you, you committed yourself, you enslaved yourself to a certain pattern of a certain defined mold of teaching. Your move to follow Christ wasn't just some emotional event. It was a commitment. In fact, if it, if it was nothing but emotion, what you'll see is that before long there will be just simply disappointment and disillusionment because those emotions will lead you up, but they'll also lead you down. They'll lead you into all kinds of false places. But being a believer is not enslaving yourself to emotions. It's enslaving yourself to a pattern, to a definite mold of teaching. We might say to a doctrine. Not that we're, as we said, unemotional. But we're not submitted to our emotions. We don't obey that. We submit ourselves to the teaching. And you'll notice what Paul says. This obedience... Doesn't arise from coercion. It's not like someone has brought a Bible and beat you over the head with it and, and harangued you through the night and made you feel guilty so that they could finally drag you through the doors of the church. This isn't external motivation. Paul says, you became obedient from the heart. In other words, God's seed is planted within you, and there's an internal change in your heart. Or we might say, we obey Christ, and we obey Him wholeheartedly. You are, in that sense, the ideal slave. You're not a uh, one who is serving by way of, uh, of an eye-pleaser, as Paul says in In Ephesians chapter 6. You're doing it from the heart. This is the mark of a true believer. His or her desire for obedience arises from within. Or as Jesus said it, the fulfillment of God's demands are that we would love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. It is comprehensive. It involves every part of you. Mind, spirit, body, emotions. And that's the reason why, if you're enslaved to God, it doesn't feel like slavery. That's why you're here this morning. You're enslaved to God, but you don't feel like you're in slavery. Because what you're doing, all the things you're doing are delight. You're doing them from your heart. And why do you want to do them? Because you understand the teaching. Why do you want to do them? Because you understand the pattern of doctrine that was presented to you. It's not as if you're perfect. It's not as if you never sin. But when you do sin, your desire drives you back to God. Your desire drives you back to the Word. Your desire drives you back to prayer. It drives you back to Christian fellowship. Because those are the things that are emanating from your heart. Those are the things that are demonstrating the change that's taking place in you. Now it's interesting here because Paul's talking about obedience to a pattern of doctrine, a pattern of teaching. In other words, he wasn't just talking about some self-styled Christianity or some, some uh, vague picture of what Christ is. He apparently had in mind a particular uh, uh, set of doctrines, a particular pattern that was delivered to these Roman believers, some form of teaching and he's obviously not talking about the law because he says in verse 14 we're no longer under the law but to say that you're no longer under the law doesn't mean that you're no longer under anything doesn't mean that you no longer have anything to obey for the believer the law has been replaced as as in its governing authority in its enslaving authority it has been replaced with a new pattern of teaching we might call it the apostolic pattern of teaching but whatever it is there's no such thing as a christian who doesn't have anything to obey there's no such thing as a believer who can just simply ignore obedience in their life because they're no longer under the law they've been committed they've been enslaved to a new teaching It encompasses everything that is explicitly taught to us in the Word of God, whether it's the explicit commands and principles of the New Testament or whether it's the implicit examples from the Old Testament. It's all the Word of God and it's all authoritative to us. And it is by this heart-level desire for obedience that we become slaves. And so it doesn't feel like slavery. Because nothing that you do from the heart can fully be compared to slavery. You're doing those things willingly, not by compulsion. Sort of like the old saying, if, you're, if the thing you do for a living is the very thing you enjoy doing, it's not work anymore, right? Well, if the very thing that you're asked to do is the very thing you want to do from the heart, you can't call it slavery. Which is part of the reason why in verse 19, Paul takes us to this third definitive statement so that we can understand this slavery. He tells us in verse 19, we will obey... Whatever we present our members to as slaves. It, or he says it particularly this way. I'm speaking, he says here in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because the limitations or your natural limitations, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. He has to, he has to sort of add this apology He says because of their weakness, because of their natural limitations, trying to make it as simple and as plain as possible, but he understands that while metaphors and illustrations are helpful, while they're all over the pages of Scripture, there's almost always some lack of similarity or some dissimilarity whenever you use a metaphor, and so he has to say, look, I, I'm speaking in, in human terms. I'm comparing this to human relationships and human institutions, but it's not exactly the same. Because slavery to Christ, the slavery that he's describing, doesn't carry with it the degrading and, and the grievous abuse that is typical in slave relationships. This isn't corresponding to the kind of humiliating slavery that we know as a human institution, Paul's saying. Because this is something that comes completely from your heart. It arises from your heart so it doesn't feel like slavery. But then, with that apology, he presents to us this, this third explanation, this third statement that helps us to understand how this operates in our life. And it's very simple You obey whomever you present yourself to. Or that word for present is literally make available. You could translate it, make available. You obey whomever you make yourself available to, to obey. When you show up at work each week, you are presenting yourself. You're making yourself available during those agreed upon hours to your employer so that they can, if you will, use you to accomplish the task of the, of the institution. If you don't present yourself, well, you can't fulfill the task, plain and simple. It's, 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 it's obvious. And in a similar fashion, Paul is saying, when you present yourself, when you make yourself available to someone as a slave, you're going to obey that person or that thing. So the reality of every believer is we are continually looking for ways, we're continually trying to discover those areas those avenues those members of our body that we can make available to God we want to make our members as- available so that they can become God's slaves it's almost identical by the way to what Paul says back in verse 13 when he told us there to present ourselves to God members as in- to- don't present yourself uh, your members as Instruments of sin for unrighteousness, for righteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought to death, from death to life. All this is sort of couched in the language of the body. Paul's been talking a lot about the body and how the body's been crucified and the old life has been crucified, the body of sin. And so as he brings up this idea of members, it seems pretty clear he's talking about, the, at least at the basic level, the parts of our body. Or we might say the, the faculties and the facets of who we are. We offer those, we make those available to God for His use, His purpose. I remember as a young man going to a, a, uh, a theological conference. I was uh, 19 years old. And I remember listening to Dr. Albert Moeller speak on the issue of culture And I think I understood about 10% of what the guy said. Uh, I was way out of my league. But I remember just sitting there in amazement at the mind of this man. And the fact that he could have done anything in life. And yet he yielded all of that intellect to God as a slave. To do with as he wills. And God was using it. And that's what we do. Our minds so that we think God's thoughts and reason God's ways. Our feet so that we go the places that will glorify God. Our hands so that we can put them to the task that make a difference for His name. Our lips so that we can edify and build up others. Our eyes so that we can uh, gaze upon and even desire things for the sake of the Lord. Our hearts, our affections, so that we love uh, people and love the things that are all for the purpose of serving God. The people we marry, we we submit that to God, so that our home and our marriage is even in service to the kingdom of God. Our money, so that it can be used by God. Our time, so that we're not serving ourselves but others. We are slaves. We're slaves and we're constantly looking for ways to make what we have available to Him. And this is the way Paul says, this is the way a slave looks and when they do that, they progress. They present themselves to righteousness as they understand it and it leads them to an increasingly sanctified life a life that is increasingly set apart from sin. In many ways, it mirrors what happens in the life of an unbeliever. An unbeliever may not realize it, but they're in this constant process of offering themselves over to to sinful thoughts, and they present themselves to sin, and it leads to further sin. And As Paul says, they present themselves to impurity, which leads to lawlessness, which leads to further lawlessness. They give themselves over, in other words, to impure thoughts, to ungodly thoughts, to untrue thoughts, which then uh, uh, manifest themselves in sinful behavior, which then have to take them into further sinful behavior. Well, the process in the Christian's life looks very very much the same in the opposite direction. You present yourself to God... You make your mind and your understanding of everything you own and have and do available to Him. And He sets you apart as His slave. Paul will come back to this, you may remember, in Romans chapter 12. And what does he say to them there? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy or we might even say sanctified and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. It only is reasonable if you are His slave that you would present everything you have to Him. Christians don't like to hear this because I think we live in an age where believers imagine that the Christian life is supposed to be easy. They're drawn into places of worship where it seems like it's a constant party and they imagine that it's supposed to be just as easy as going and hanging out with other people and somehow the Christian uh, graces and the spiritual maturity is just going to rub off on them. And they imagine that it, it ought to be as easy as everything else in life is easy. So that if they're depressed, they go out and they pop a pill. Or if they're particularly discontent, they go and spend some time shopping to to sort of assuage the the the, 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 the feeling of discontentment, drown it, if you will. Or they go watch a movie to get their minds off their troubles. And they think Christianity ought to be just as easy. Well, if this is what you think Christian life is, You're you're, you're going to suffer. You're not going to make progress. The sad reality is that some of you haven't progressed in quite some time. You look back on your life and you think about the ways in which you've grown. And they are years in the past now the glory days of your Christian life when you were all about God and you laid your entire life before Him. In the time since then, other things have happened. You've been able to keep up appearances. You've been able to spout out some theology. You've been able to impress some other people by what you know, but you haven't grown. You haven't pressed into those new areas of your life that have been untouched by God and made them available to Him? Trying to guard and keep them for yourself? But this is an ongoing process, Paul says. You keep making yourself, you keep making your members, you keep making the individual parts of who you are one by one, available to the Lord. And in this daily process, the Lord uses it to lead you into greater and greater pathways of sanctification. Well, that leads us to the fourth uh, definitive statement explaining this slavery to us. And that is in verses 20 through 23, Paul tells us we'll either receive death or life depending on our Master. This is the summary, if you will, of the whole thing. He says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. There was a a kind of freedom, he says, when you were a slave of sin. You were free in the sense that you felt no obligation to God, to His standard of righteousness. It was a freedom... Uh, or I should say a sense of freedom that you had, but it wasn't real freedom. It wasn't. Why? Because of the consequences. Paul says, what fruit were you getting from that so-called freedom? Those things of which you're now ashamed. What was the outcome? What was the consequences? Well, the end of those things was death. So the fruit, Paul indicates, is first of all shame, and secondly, Ultimately, death. It brought shame. It brought dishonor. It undermined your, your credibility. In some cases, it undermined your integrity. It burdened your conscience. It caused people in your life to disrespect you, to avoid you, to hate you, or whatever it might be. And then, all, when all of that is done, ultimately, its worst fruit is, is eternal death. People in that life walk around believing they're free, thinking they're free in regard to righteousness. Israel felt that way. Jeremiah 2 verse 31, why do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a young maiden forget her ornaments or a bride, her attire? In other words, you might want to be free from the constraints of your attire, free from the burdens of your clothing. Walk around unclothed. But what's the result of that? Shame, mockery, not to mention exposure. It's insane. It's like a skydiver wanting to be free from the straps of his backpack. It's not a freedom that's real. You're locking yourself into doom, you're locking yourself into death. But that's the way you see yourself if you're proclaiming your freedom from sin. But Paul says in verse 22, when you've been freed from sin, when you have been set free and become a slave of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. It leads to a transformed life. It leads to the blessings that come with righteousness. It leads to the freedom that you finally have from all the guilt and all the shame. It leads to a sanctified life, he says, and ultimately to its end, eternal life. Because as Paul says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In the end, you find out that not only was it slavery to sin, it was a form of employment. You earned something. You earned eternal death. You earned the day of your payment when forever your bondage to despair and shame and guilt are irreversibly sealed. You earn that. That is the wage you'll receive. But on the other hand, those who are in Christ, they have their heart awakened. They find the freedom in Christ from their sin. He says, you're given eternal life. And all the praise and all the honor goes to Him. If you're here this morning and you, you know that this slavery descri- describes you, if you're here and you know someone might have compelled you, but, but what you're doing this morning doesn't come from your heart, Christianity sounds like slavery to you. You think you're free. I want to tell you something very plain. God has brought you here. God has brought you so you can hear this message. So that some, some point, at some time in your life, you would hear the truth. You're not free. You're not free. In fact, you're very much in bondage and very much headed for eternal punishment. But if the Son makes you free, you will be free. And so our invitation to you this morning is when we close here in prayer in just a moment that you wouldn't leave this place without finding someone that you know knows the Lord and would talk to them about those things about which you are now ashamed and find the forgiveness that comes in Christ and the freedom that comes by the power of the cross. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to You that You have set us free. Indeed, we feel that sense of shame and there is no life of faith apart from it as we look back at the insanity and the foolishness that we so zealously pursued. Oh Lord, how blind we were, how trapped we were, even when we didn't see it. And Lord, we unite our hearts this morning to pray together for those among us who still cling to some idea of freedom when in fact they're clinging to the chains of their bondage. Release them, Lord. Free them. Flood their heart and their life with the light of the gospel. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear that they might respond to the truth and be free indeed. And for us, Lord, help us if in any way we have closed off and not made available to You every part of our life, help us to press forward through the high calling of Christ to yield up to You everything we have for indeed we're not our own. We've been enslaved to You. And it's our delight not only here but For all eternity. That we will be yours. That everything we have. And everything we do. Yielded in service to your name. And we. We reap the benefits. Bless you Lord for your grace. And your kindness and your mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.